In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. If you've ever picked up an issue of The New Yorker, chances are you've seen the work of cartoonist Roz Chast. Her characters appear to be hastily drawn in colored pencils by a clever child while talking on the phone. But on closer examination, you recognize the complex emotions that her drawings contain. Though their faces are made up of only a few squiggles, you spot a look of resentment in the mother, resignation in the father, entitlement in the son, and defiance in the daughter. Chast gives life to the objects around the family as well. She trains her eye on what the rest of us don't see, archiving the detritus, real or imagined, that we leave behind in our wake. You could call her an anthropologist of human emotions, but Roz Chast prefers to keep her title simple. Uh, I guess a cartoonist. Yeah, cartoonist is And how long have you been doing the pieces for The New Yorker, since when? Uh, I started in 1978. For uh, The New Yorker? For The New Yorker, yeah. And, and did you, now how does that work? Did you submit and submit for eons and eons and finally got accepted, or? No, I, I had a very strange experience. When I got out of art school, I was starting to take a portfolio around, and I was doing cartoons for various places. I actually thought I would wind up working for The Village Voice. That was sort of my goal, because that's where I pictured my stuff, you know, Jules Pfeiffer, did cartoons for the sure. Village Voice, and I thought, well, if I work really hard and if I'm really lucky and if there's a receptive editor, that's where I'll be. Uh, my parents subscribed to The New Yorker, and so at some point I thought, well, I might as well try them. But I really did not think that that was where my cartoons would be because especially in 1978, my cartoons were not what they had in the magazine. And uh, but I thought In what I w- way? Uh, well, How would you describe what was in the magazine? And They were mostly single-panel cartoons with a gag line underneath. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were funny. I liked a lot of the art in them. I loved, you know, Charles Adams and Ed Corrin, Jack Ziegler. There were a lot of Gain Wilson when he appeared. There were a lot of cartoons that I liked, but I just did not see my stuff in there, I guess because of the single-panel thing. And especially back then, my stuff was lots of panels and... They were really, really tiny. The boxes were about postage stamp size. (laughs) And, in fact, the editor at The New Yorker told me that I had to start making them bigger because um, they were just very hard to see. But I think in this sort of logical but sort of slightly insane way, I thought if I just draw really small, like nobody will get really angry with me. So anyway, one time, and it was in April of 78, I dropped off this portfolio of cartoons to The New Yorker. I had called them up and found out when they saw stuff over the transom. I didn't know anybody there. I didn't no know how many— No computers back then, no, no com- internet. Yeah, you had to hand nothing. paper to them. Paper, right. And I didn't know how many cartoons— Who was the did, editor then? Uh, William Sean. Sean. And uh, Lee Lorenz was the cartoon, the art editor. There was no cartoon editor. He was in charge of all the art, the covers, the inside, you know, there wasn't that much art. There was the cartoons, there was the covers, there were spot drawings, and that was pretty much it. When I came back next week to pick them up, I had about 60 cartoons in there. I really did not know what I was doing. There was a note from him to come back and see him. It turned out I'd sold a cartoon, and he told me to come back every week. So that's kind of what I've been doing. How would you say that you're in the... 
they do they do double issues, so they probably put out what about fifty issues or forty eight issues a year, something like that. And you'd say that you appear in the magazine how often per year? It goes on streaks. I mean, it's uh, they'll take whatever you've got. No, no. I mean, it's weird. They pass on stuff you send them. No, oh, tons because I mean they reject at least ninety percent. Of the stuff you submit? Yes, yes. The way there's, I don't know, maybe 40 cartoonists on staff, and we all submit a group of cartoons every week. I send in usually six to eight cartoons, and um, sometimes they take one, sometimes they don't take any. Every blue moon they take two, but the overwhelming majority of what I turn in is rejected. And where does that go? It goes on top of my file cabinet. <laughs> with, uh, with its other reject brethren. Right. The graveyard. <laughs> the graveyard. Ross Chess imagination. Yeah, but, you know, then I, some, I often I don't get go published somewhere it. else? Uh, I used to do some of cartoons for a Scientific American um, and Red Book. Uh, well, you don't put them online on a website that is Ross Chess rejected cartoons. Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I... I uh, <laughs> so they don't go on a website. A website. <laughs> okay, no. No, no. They're I on top of a filing cabinet. Tumblr and Instagram. Yeah. No. Um, no. So much trouble. It's so much trouble, and they're just bad anyway. And anyway, uh, sometimes I redraw them, and, and I rework them. And, you know, because if I'm really stubborn about a joke, if I think this could be a good joke, if I just need to make it better, you know. So where did you go to art school? I went to Rhode Island School of Design. You went to RISD? RISD, right. What did you study there? Did you study art in a I started generic out, way? I started out in graphic design because I thought I would be practical, and I hated it. It was just, you know, a lot of—it uh, seemed like this was about learning to be neat and measure exactly, and uh, I really was not— Good at that. Had you been cartooning since you were a child? Yeah. You started when you were young. I started when I was really little. And I think a lot of it had to do with that I was an only child and my parents were a lot older. And that was one way to kind of keep me entertained. We're going to get to your parents. Oh, do we have to? No, I'm kidding. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) And the chastity and uh, psychological condition, was that in the early drawings as well? Did Ross Chest as a child (laughs) draw pictures of other children going, what's the point? Help me. Of going to the library. (laughs) I like the library. What's the point of going to the movies? (laughs) We can have snacks at home. Uh, No, I think when I was a kid, I drew everything. I mean, I like to draw people. Uh, I liked, you know, funny remarks and conversations and, uh, yeah, you know, just like to draw. And then when you left RISD, what did you do before you started uh, Becoming who you became with the New Yorker. And so you graduated RISD when? In 77. Oh, so it was only a year before you yeah. submitted to Sean. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So it was actually less. Uh, is there other work you do as an artist during that period of time? I mean, do you wind up, is this the beginning of you making your living as a cartoonist right away? Um, I started out actually doing illustrations. They were terrible. I was doing cartoons on my own, but I never thought that I would be able to make a living at first as a cartoonist. You know, I was living in my parents' apartment, and that was enough. And uh, I sort of made up a weird illustration style that was like a pastiche of all the popular styles of the day. And they were pretty terrible. I did not get much work. And at some point, I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to try submitting the cartoons because this is really what I like to do. And... At least if nobody takes them, then I'll know that, you know, I tried. So I don't know if I even thought it out that far or whether it was really that the illustrations weren't getting any work at all. And when I started doing the cartoons, that's when I started getting work. I started selling to— What did the illustrations look like? Were they in the—they're not in the style? Uh, when, you, when, you're, when you're an artist and you do illustrations, it's, it, it's, it's it, like you draw birds like Audubon— you don't draw birds like Ross Chast draws cartoons and people. They're not squiggly lines of people with their hands up around their mouths. Ugh, they were just like these fake kind of <laughs> Milton Glazer mixed with a little weird abstracty kind of junk because at RISD I was taught like you don't want to be too tight. When you draw, so there was like a kind of like fake loose kind of thing. Ugh, tossed the, off. The, well, they were not tossed off. They were fake 
loose, you know. They were like to look like they were loose. Uh, uh, just horrible. And I didn't like doing them. I mean, that was the worst part. Was there someone that taught you then who helped you that you remember who was a great mentor of yours? Um, when I was in high school, I went to um, the Art Students League on week on uh, it was one Saturday a month, and I 57th had Fifty Seventh Street. Yeah, yeah, and that's. I mean, I could not say that I know anatomy by any stretch of the imagination, but it's where I took a lot of figure drawing, and I loved the Art Students League, and I had an amazing teacher there named Andrew Lukash. I liked that a lot. When you start working with the, for The New Yorker, how long does it go on before you're making a living just doing that? Um, I don't think I've ever... I've always done other things, Such like as? illustrations. Um, and a tossed-off kind of faux well, Milton Glacier style? No. And what happened was once my style got known through The New Yorker, then people would hire me because it was okay to draw my style. And uh, I remember doing some illustration. I think, what was that magazine? It wasn't called – oh, I can't remember. Maybe it was – it could have been Ms. I can't remember. Somebody's Closet. It was just like I had all these clothes and these arrows with words like sick, yuck, throw out, you know. And it was like I could in- incorporate the jokes and the writing into the illustrations. And so, you know, in the, in the years after that, after my cartoon started appearing in The New Yorker, I was able to get illustration work, but they knew what I did. I mean, every once in a while something weird would happen, like um, a magazine would say, I think it was Seventeen Magazine, I, had, I illustrated a booklet for teenagers about, I don't even, manners or something. And they said, could you make your people look more contemporary? And I thought, they don't look contemporary? You know, I just thought, well, this is how I draw contemporary people, you know? I mean, what, are they supposed to wear a different sort of hairband or something? I just, I don't know. It just, like, no matter what I put on my characters, they look how they look. They said, okay, and then we went on from there. Sean was the uh, editor when you first came in. Was Gottlieb next after that? Uh, It was Sean, Gottlieb, Tina, and David. How does that change the perception of your work editor to editor and then art director and cartoon editor and on and on? Does, have you had a different reception for your work over the last several years? Um, I was very uh, panicky when Tina Brown took over because – and I think several people were because I had the impression that she liked only topical stuff. And I think that uh, – that my a lot of my cartoons during that time became more topical. But the thing with very topical cartoons is, you know, you can't really include them in a collection. I mean, who really cares about a Monica Lewinsky joke right now? Right. So, you know, I felt like if I could do them in a way that was still my stuff, it was all right. But um, that— Were I, your fears assuaged once she got there? Did she get your— Yeah, it was all right. It was okay, but, but I think— But there is some difference in terms yeah, of the reception yeah, to your I th- work. I think so. I think so. Um, and, and who knows how much of it was in my own, you know, projection. Another thing I thought about was just pure writing. Have you done a lot of writing, and do you do writing as, uh, aside from doing the cartooning? Because um, so much of what you do involves writing. And yeah. this book that you have out now is so beautifully written in terms of the honesty and the— Oh, thank you. Thanks. Um, I think that one thing I have always loved about cartoons is that they have writing and they have pictures. And it's not just like an illustration in the best cartoons, in the best graphic novels, graphic, uh, you know, storytelling, the words and the pictures play off each other. The illustration is not necessarily a literal illustration of the words that you see on the page. It could be moving the story forward or back, or it could be like in total contradiction to what's written. Um, There's some sort of thing going on between the two of them. And what I love is that I don't have to choose. Like in this book, there were times where a picture served you know, best to tell what I wanted to tell. And there were parts where I really wanted, it needed to be all text. You know, the pictures would not have helped. It would have, in fact, detracted. And I do like to write. I have written, um, I've written, for The New Yorker, I've written a talk of the town piece. I wrote Shouts and Murmurs. I've written an obituary (laughs) um, for uh, the wonderful cartoonist Leo Cullum. Um, I like to write. I like to write. Mostly, though, um, I like cartoons. 
You do? Yeah. You say, are you much of a television watcher? Oh, yeah. I oh, mean, sure. as someone who's, who's very funny and, oh, yeah. and, and, and humorist certainly applies to you in your work, like any good cartoonist, um, what kind of television do you watch? Oh, God. I love so many of these, you know, repeating the series that have been on. Right. Oh, my God. I watch— I watch a Binge View. Yeah, I binge you. Last night I watched three episodes of Broadchurch, British show, um, about a little kid who's murdered, and Broadchurch is the name of the town. Um, I've watched that. I've watched, you know, Broad City, Girls, Mad Men, what's it, The Wire, uh, and Sopranos. And a lot of this isn't funny. No, no. Uh, Broad City, though, is funny. Right. You're not a sitcom watcher. No, I'm not much of a sitcom watcher. Um, I watch sitcoms. But that's not funny to you. No, when I was a kid, I watched a ton of sitcoms. Such as? Bewitched, Green Acres. <laughs> I mean, I was obsessed with Bewitched. Yeah, where's the Agnes Moorhead of today? Oh, I mean, my, my God. God. I can still hear the credits in my head. I watched Beverly Hillbillies. Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island, totally. Yeah. I mean, I still see a lot of people in terms of Gilligan's Island. I still have dreams about Ginger. Oh, my God. And so I was say, at least it's not like Gilligan. No, no. <laughs> Weird. Gilligan's tied up to a tree in my dream. Gilligan and the skipper. Gilligan, they're all on the other side of the island while yeah. I'm doing the laundry, quote, unquote, with yeah. Ginger. Uh-huh. Oh, I yeah. see. I see. And the last TV show uh, until The Sopranos came along that I watched with any um, uh, devotion was Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Yes. And yes. I mean, I was addicted to the weirdness of that show when I was like, I forget, 16 or 17 years old. I did sort of get into the Mary Tyler Moore show. You did? And there were a couple of years when I first got out of college. Maybe it was the first year I got out of college where I was living in the apartment, living in my my first apartment. Actually, it was when I got out of college when I was still living at home for a while, and then I moved into my own apartment, that I didn't really have much of a social life. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And You're working? I was working, and I was working on my cartoons, and I was mostly mostly pretty depressed. <laughs> Big shock. Um, because? Well, I was living at home, and I just thought, this is so my life. you were still at home with your parents in Brooklyn? I was still Brooklyn. at home with my parents in Brooklyn, and I thought, this is my life. How old were you? Um, I was 22, 22. And I didn't know how to fill my time. I think that was another thing that, like— you know, it's it's so different now with the internet. Sure. But before, it was like there were these stretches. I mean, I was also in love with this guy, and it wasn't reciprocal. Um, what did he do? He was a painter. Mm-hmm. Um, Where'd you meet him? School. Oh, he was at RISD. He was at RISD. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> eh. Yeah. Eh. But anyway, uh, so. It was it was a very depressing time, and I used to watch the Mary Tyler Moore show and also The Odd Couple, and it, the there were these things that sort of like, like I knew if I got to those shows, I would like live through the day. It's hard to sort of explain, but I remember that those shows made me I feel had more million normal. Dollar movie. Yeah, and they would pay that. They'd play that opening, uh, that title sequence, and Gone with the Wind. I told someone I spent. You're a real New Yorker. I spent six months on the internet surfing the Carters and the Baffles and the Warrens of YouTube to find the voice of the man that was the voice of my childhood. Now it's interesting that you remember the voices. I don't remember that, but I remember that clapboard like really well. Which one? Do you remember Million Dollar Movie? The four thirty movie. That was the 430 movie. No, that was— No? That that was—I think that the Million Dollar Movie was the clapboard. was the later one. Um, the 430 movie, I think, had a kind of grandfather clock kind well, of logo. I, I, I don't want, I don't want to be taking was, you on. No, and the music was— I think I've got you here. I, I, I don't you mean to be I'm lecturing wrong? Roz you Chess. You think I'm wrong? But I'm going to tell you. The clapboard and the camera on the dolly was the 430 movie. That was the, the, the slate. The, Maybe the piece, I'm remembering something the, really long ago. You have been breathing in a lot of chemicals there in your cartooning studio, and your memory is failing you. The one you're referring to is a famous piece called Syncopated Clock, and that was The Late Show on CBS <gasps> and The Late Late Show on CBS. 
So the clapboard was the early show? The 4.30 movie on ABC. But when did you realize that that was a clapboard? I can't believe I'm telling you this. I know. A clapboard? In the business, they call it a slate. Okay, slate. See, I didn't know. I thought it was like a black (laughs) thank you. I didn't know what it was until I was much older. A clapboard. It looked like a a weird blackboard to me. You can't be expected to know this. You were depressed back then. I know. The painter wasn't around. You were living with your parents in Crazyville. How old were you when you moved out of the apartment? Uh... 23. So you're just there for a year? Just there for a year. About. Yes, yes. And then you moved to where? To Manhattan? Yes, moved to Manhattan. A wonderful apartment on 73rd Street. Loved. 73rd and what? Uh, between Amsterdam and Columbus. Oh, great area. Great it was area. wonderful. It was, it was you know, kind of ratty back then. Sure. Not terrible, but It was ratty. still the wild, wild west back yeah, then. Yeah, it was ratty. You know, yeah. there were like linoleum stores and yeah. secondhand clothing stores. Sure. Teachers and, were still on Broadway. Yes, yes. And, and like, prostitutes used to wear like faux fur coats and yes. approach you on Broadway. Yes, and as you went up on Amsterdam Avenue, people in the summer would like barbecue out of their cars. And I remember that because the painter that I like lives on 82nd Street in Amsterdam. And once you crossed like 79th Street, you were just like, I don't even know where I am. Now, how old were you when you met your husband? 25. So this is again, like a year or two later. Yeah. And you met him where? At the New Yorker. <laughs> all you know, you New Yorker people all just uh, yeah. uh, commingle. Yes, pretty much so. Pretty much. Yeah. And yeah. only another New Yorker uh, staff member can understand. What? It just, you know, these are the people we know, and right. we cross paths. And what did he do? Bill. He, Yeah, Bill, he's a writer. And what does he write predominantly? Uh, short humor. Talk of the town. This is talk of the town, right. stuff like that. Well, now, let's— Is there some reason why the lights in here are like— eh. I'm surprised. I'm just— <laughs> You know, I'm coming into this interview with you, having read your cartoons and loved your cartoons, and I am a great quelling, kvetching, whining bundle of insecurity myself. I am. I'm a ball of insecurity. And for you of all people, I've got all these presumptions about you. To ask about the power fluctuations in an old apartment building, I'm just surprised. This is an old apartment building. Okay. You take up this carpet, there's linoleum there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I come completely this understand This is Larry that. Josephson's temple of I communications. I just needed an explanation. Yeah, I just wanted power. to make sure that— Are you that, worried like, about that you don't have some neurological disorder? Yeah, no, you I don't. don't have any neurological <laughs> disorder as far as I know. I, you know, it's—but but but I just sense— wondered. You know, there yeah. was just things a going bit on. Of a ele- going ele- here. Electrical yeah. things We're going being, on. Yeah, so. So, all right, yeah. all right. Bob now Hope that is I trying know. to talk it's just to us. An old Charles Schultz is trying to talk to yes. you. Oh, <laughs> he's born on my birthday, actually. Really? Yes. What did you think of that cartoon? Uh, Peanuts. Yeah. I, uh, when I was younger, I liked it a lot. Yeah. I still think it has some fantastic archetypes. Right. But, you know, it's not completely my cup of tea, but I like it. What is you your know? cup of tea? Charles Adams, probably. Charles Adams. Jay and Wilson, Gang. Charles Adams, uh, sort of more oddball. Tim Burton. Tim Burton, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Chast said she loved Charles Adams' work when she was young because, quote, it made fun of stuff you weren't supposed to make fun of, unquote. It's clear she wasn't your average kid growing up in Brooklyn in the 50s and 60s. In her cartoon, a note on the author, Chast drew her nine-year-old self-reading The Big Book of Horrible Rare Diseases. I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Take a listen to our archive. More in-depth conversations with artists, policymakers, and performers like Lena Dunham. Dunham and Chast both talked to me about their early years, but Dunham's plans for her future were way off. Always thought I would be like a weird gender and women's studies teacher who occasionally showed movies at film festivals and hung out in my strange apartment that was stacked high with books. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. 
Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash fits. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is Roz Chast. Can we talk about something more pleasant? Her graphic memoir about taking care of her elderly parents in their final years was nominated for a National Book Award last year. Along with her drawings that told the story of her parents, the book includes actual photographs of the objects they left behind. While cleaning out her parents' fridge, Chast found an invention of her mother's from the 60s made from mismatched Tupperware held together with masking tape called the cheese tamer. Chast says anything to do with death is funny, but the emotional honesty of her book produced more than just laughs. The New York Times called Can We Talk as ambitious, raw, and personal as anything she has produced. Yeah, this is definitely the most personal. And and how would you describe it? The book is called Can't We... (laughs) I'm sorry. Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? Which comes from my father. That's something that he would say any time a topic that was a little dicey would come up. Because my mother loved talking about, like, weird illnesses than friends of hers had. Like, you know, did you hear about Shirley? She has, like, blood coming out of her right ear, blood and pus. And she was just sitting in the Chinese restaurant. More pus than blood, actually. (laughs) It was like it started out more blood than pus. Then it started shifting. Then it was 50% blood. Uh, Now it's an enormous amount. (laughs) And then my father would just say, can't we talk Talk about about something something more more pleasant? pleasant. So my yeah. mother, you and I are going to go back and forth about our mothers. In my family, we we make fun of my mother because my mother will not have six degrees of separation. She'll have a hundred and six degrees of separation from someone, and yet feel the pain of someone she could never possibly meet or know. <laughs> but she loved tragedy. She was addicted to tragedy. Yeah, the drama thing. The drama. Drama, thing. melodrama. Yeah. Tell me about the genesis of this book, if you will. Uh, well, I think in my head, I do sort of take notes on things. There were a lot of cartoons in this book. Well, I was telling you earlier about how every week I submit around six or eight cartoons. So, and then you were asking me about the rejects on top of the file cabinet. Some of these cartoons, like the one with the um, the oven mitt, they were things that I did when I would go visit my parents and I would have like a sort of insane conversation with my mother about that was, you know, this oven mitt, which was, uh, I mean, who patches an oven mitt? They cost like four ninety nine, and this was before. This was way before she was. You know, she was still grocery shopping, so I know she could have bought an oven mitt, and it was patched with a skirt that I had made in seventh grade home economics class, and I could not understand why she still had it. You know, but then, you know, as it became clear, she they never threw anything away, ever, 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 ever. They just kind of like shoved it farther back in the closet, um, and uh, so. An episode of hoarders. Yes, they were kind of hoarders and um, borderline hoarders, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were not rats, like, scurrying. I mean, I have watched the hoarders show. They were farm league hoarders. Yes, yes, they were, were, yeah, farm league hoarders. So some of the cartoons... Like the the that the um, cheese Danish one. There's probably ten or twenty in the book that I did, not thinking 
in any way that they would become part of a book, but that I did, you know, within a couple of weeks of the incident happening. Like, or the, the Ouija board one, you know, where when my father was dying and I, my daughter was doing Ouija board with some friends in her room. And, you know, I barely was touching it. I'm with my daughter and a couple of friends. They're like 16 years old. And the thing spells out, you know, heaven beckons. I Oh, I asked it, I should say. I asked the Ouija board, is grandpa going to die soon? And my daughter was like, mom, that's so morbid. But it was the first question that popped into my head. So I yeah. asked it. And I was not touching the planchette, you know. I was just like, my hands were like touching two atoms worth because I was partly curious to see, like, where are these kids going to move it, you know? And, you know, I so I wrote that up. So So that's... The genesis, but the genesis from the book, I think it just sort of started to fall together, probably. Like when you photograph the objects in the house, there's that little piece in the book where you have photographs of the uh, pencil drawer and these these wonderfully plain and simple things that that are snapshots that all of us say, this is how we live. When you were doing that, were you saying to yourself, I'm going to put this down into a book of some kind? Did you know before that? that? No, I think that, well, I I knew I was getting rid of almost everything in the apartment, and I wanted memories of it. I think that I thought in the same way that when something is interesting, I think somehow this might be useful. And maybe in some very vague way, I was thinking about a book. But I don't think I really thought about, I wasn't really thinking of this because I didn't even have a title for it for the longest time or how it would be structured or whether it could be a book. I didn't even know whether it could really be a book or how I would use the photograph. So a lot of it just kind of came together more later. So for you... You didn't decide until when. When did you sit there and go, I want to get this on paper, this, my feelings about my parents? I think probably. And why? Somewhere between my father's death and my mother's death, somewhere in there. And why? I think because I didn't want to forget. And I just, I just knew that if I did not get it down, I would forget. I would, uh, I'd forget how they sounded. I'd forget. Do you think it's an instinct all of us have to some degree? I mean, normal people? Yeah, I think so. To want to chronicle that in some way? I definitely think so. Their lives? I think it's why we tell stories. I think it's why we tell our friends, oh, my God, this is – or why, you know, we don't because maybe we don't want to remember. Why we videotape our children now within an inch of their lives. Right, right. Why people take selfies because you don't want to forget. And you know on some level that it's all just going to become like – You know, just like, what did I have for dinner yesterday? I have no idea. I don't remember. You were closer to your dad than your mom. Definitely. Uh, Both of your parents, being older parents, was one of the things you credited with them leaving you alone to draw, correct? Oh, yeah. I think that they were— A lot of alone time for you? A lot of alone time. And most of their friends did not have children. They were just, you know, a lot of school teacher friends who uh, some of them were, you know, bachelors or bachelorettes uh, and just or couples that preferred to travel or go to lectures or, you know, go to the opera and they did not want to be burdened with children. And both of my parents, I think, were sort of in that category. And as I mentioned in this book, they did have a child, a baby that uh, my mother lost. Um, no, she did not, like, lose it in the supermarket. She lost the baby at seven and a half months. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they were very afraid to try again. And then I was born to them when they were in their 40s. But they were old. They were like an old 40s. They were, you know, you could see from that photo that uh, my mother wore blouses that buttoned up the back. I don't even know where you get these kind of blouses, you know. she uh, sanitarian. This, where else? Yeah. <laughs> she wore like blouses with like the placket in the front. Blouses, you know. Um, I never saw her wear like a button-down shirt or any kind where of— Where was she from? She was fr- she was born. Uh, in, they were both grew up in in Manhattan, East Harlem. They were both New Yorkers. Both New Yorkers. Yes, they were both born in this country, but all of their grandparents were uh, from Russia. And both your parents were school teachers. Uh, my yes, for a long time. In fact, my mother was Woody Allen's teacher. Oh yeah, I know. I know. Strange. Um, and he remembers her. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, describe your mom. Okay, she was 
very tough. She was, well, you asked me if they were school teachers. My mother became an assistant principal, a job for which she was perfectly suited. She was a disciplinarian. She was uh, somebody, uh, she was about 5'2", then she shrunk as she got older. So she was a very tiny she spark was plug of a woman. A spark plug, more like a fire hydrant. Okay. She was short and she was very, very strong and she was heavy. And she was Zoftig. Zoftig. She was very smart. I wouldn't say she. I mean, where did she go to college? She went to Hunter College. Uh-huh. My father went to City College. Um, she was very, very bright. Uh, she was good in a crisis. She would be the kind. She was would be a great administrator. She was tough. She was very tough. Very, tough, very capable. Very, very capable. Very tough. I think she resented that. Um, as a woman, she was not going to necessarily get the same sorts of promotions as like men who were much, you know, less capable than her. Uh, I think that there's a kind of like Venn diagram where some of these skills overlap with the skills of being a mom and some of them really do not. And uh, she was very uncompromising. And I think to be a, a parent, it involves a lot of compromise. Right. And you can't be too rigorously you, honest and be a parent. No, you can't be too rigorously honest, and you can't be too strict. You can't be too rigid, you know. And she was rigid. She was rigid. She would rather— And she had her view of the world and the way things should be. This is the woman that had the cheese tainer. Yes, yes. That's my favorite, the in, cheese tainer. In fact, I think my mother chose that she would rather stick to her guns about something that she thought was right and have me hate her then look for some other way of doing this. Do you think your mother sensed the tension between the two of you? I think she did. Yeah, it was was almost like she knew. Did she know that even she knew this could have gone a lot better than it did? No, I don't think she did. I think that was the thing that was sort of hard to take, that I think we were— She lacked empathy. She had empathy, but she—or she had something. I don't know what she had, but whatever it was, we—the two of us were so completely different, like just cut from such two completely, to use this horrible cliche, pieces of cloth, not my fabric from seventh grade, um, that there was just no way she could even understand. How did that influence you raising your child? You you have a boy and a girl? Yeah, I was totally different. I mean— um, when she would say things— You let your kids set the house on fire. Oh, well, just short of that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I— um, you know, Have you made cartoons about you as a mother? I have. I have. How lean you are? Oh, my God. I have a whole cartoon about being a wimp mom where when my son was about like three or four, you know, those kind of crazy arguments where you're like you're reading a book about dinosaurs and you go— Dinosaurs were very, very big. And the kid is in a certain pissy mood and they go, no, they weren't. And so— I think my response was, you're right. Dinosaurs were as tiny as peas. I mean, you know, but anyway, I remember when she would say, when I would be like incredibly angry, she would say, when you have children of your own, you'll understand. And I knew I wouldn't. Right. You know, I'll understand all right. Oh, I'll understand. I'm going to do do something, you know, I I don't want to not have a relationship. And this is in the family where there's one child. In my family, there were six children. And money was just a constant. Yeah. You know, it was just a metronomic reality. Where did you grow up? Uh, Massapequa, Long Island, did in you the have heart of residential Long Island. King corn stamps? Did you did we your had mom King co- corn, yeah. Plaid we were, stamps? Yeah, plaid stamps, stamps. Back when they had the old Bohax. <laughs> Bohax, yes. And the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company. <laughs> yes. All those bounds, things. We used to yes. drink Tang. Tang. We had no. Tang for breakfast. My father would make us Tang. This is what the astronauts had, we were told. <laughs> it was really just a bunch of sugar. With some, Does Tang still exist? I, 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 I want to believe Tang is out there. Yeah, yeah. You uh, can probably get it on some, like, weird. Weird, yeah, nostalgic strawberry web, quick. Website. We were drinking. You know, our parents just let us yeah. uh, you oh. know, not, not eat whatever we wanted to, but pretty close. What did your parents think about it? I mean, I'm assuming they certainly picked up uh, at least allow that maybe your father did. Your father was a pretty bright guy. Yeah, they were both bright. They were both, both, both bright, but your, your father seemed to have more of a sense of humor than your mother? I don't know. Not, they, they just had a different sense of humor, very old-fashioned. So did they know that they, they were the, the font of a lot of the humor in your cartoons? Um, I think— that my mother sort of knew. She I did. think that they did sort of know. Did they ever comment know. on that to you? Yes. Yes, they did, and I always denied it. Why are you making fun of us in your yeah. cartoons? And I would say, Why? I'd say, Mom, this is not you. This is this is a sort of mom 
It's a different Elizabeth. It's a different Elizabeth. No, but this, of course, you know, (laughs) they did not see this book for obvious reasons. And it is not a book that I could have written while they were alive. Definitely not. Is your your husband from the same kind of family? No, no. He's from opposite land. Freshly baked pies and hams. Oh, definitely. Midwestern Minnesota. Is he really? Yes, yes. And I watched— Grammy Hall. Yes, yes. I've watched home movies of his family, and they're all, like, attractive and happy, and they're, like, playing. Splitting wood. Yes, yes. They're, like, healthy. In between— Courses of the dinner, they go and split some more wood yes. for the fire. Yes, they're attractive. They, like, get along <laughs> with each other. <laughs> they never been yeah. sick a day in their lives. No, I mean, I've seen, like, family photos, and they're, like, sitting. Antibiotics, what is that? Oh, my God. I have family photos that are not in this book of, like, my relatives, and they're, like, sitting around, like, the dining table with bottles of Manischewitz and those kind of seltzer bottles. And, and like, they're one of them is actually wearing a babushka. And, and they look so glum. They look like they're just about to get slaughtered. Oh, my God. It is, and then they're just not smiling. They look just— His family. My family. Yeah, yeah, your family. My family, these old black and white photos, and they're just grim. And you say to his family, you say, is there any depression in your family? And after a pause, they say, well, there was a sinkhole out by the well once back in 1955. You know, they don't, then there's just it's, nothing, no— Well, they, they, you know, they're, they're Scandinavian, so there is that dark side. But that's natural to it's them. Naturally, but yes, but, but yeah, you basically you don't talk about it. You just don't talk about you it. You don't talk about you it. And you make drink. the best and, you know, you have a drink or you, you know, go out. Oh, we discovered a really nice restaurant out on Route 92 and they have it's a funny one- how, the, but that's the, aren't they on to something? Don't we find that as we get older, isn't that just the answer? Someone said um, to me, what, what are your requirements in life? Now I'm going to be 57 years old. I said, I want a good reading lamp. Yeah. I need a good radio wherever I go. I'm yeah. a radio addict. Mm-hmm. I said I need a good cup of coffee. I yeah. mean, I don't. I don't need five star hotels. I don't right. need uh, private jets. I mean, all these things that might have been a part of uh, yeah. in my in my deck. I don't need any of that anymore. Yeah, you know, I need a good uh, a good fireplace. You know, very fireplace. simple needs. Yeah. Very, yeah. very Scandinavian needs. Yes, yes. Well, maybe that's <laughs> like when you get older. It's like, yeah. Don't we all become more Scandinavian? Yes, we all. Know? We're all like going towards the Scandinavian side. Tell me about your dad. Ferris. And his relationship with your mom. Oh, she wore the pants? She pretty much wore the pants, yeah. He was—I uh, think she helped him a lot. He clung to her. He, she knew what to do. She drove. She was confident. It was a maternal relationship, which yes. many men back then did. Yes. He went from his mother, who was, you know, she was actually, I think, kind of nuts. I mean, literally, he. she slept— across the foot of his bed until he was 21. She was bats. She was kind of like a borderline bag lady. And he needed to marry somebody, another woman to take care of him. Yes, exactly. Who also had a little bit of an edge to her. Yes, yes, very Someone much. hard to please. Someone hard to please. Someone who I think he probably read, you know, being screamed at as love. You know, right. and also that she would make all I scream all the, at you because I care. Because I care. I will tell you the right thing to do, and I will yell at you if you don't do it right, and— you know, this is how I show my love, and I will always take care of you. And she always did. She always, but it was, and it was very much, you know, between the two of them. You know, the death of my dad was just the, the seismic event. He was 55 years old, and it was probably, it was so painful because I couldn't do anything for him once I made it. Yeah. You know, I made yeah, it, and I made yeah. more money than I could ever spend. And I think to myself, what yeah. I wouldn't do to buy my dad a car, a yeah. house, a, a camel hair coat. You but know did what I mean? he want that sort of stuff? I mean, I bought stuff. I never had a chance to find out. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's, yeah. I mean, I bought stuff. I mean, I didn't make that kind of money, but still, I wanted to, I, my parents had, their clothing had, was ratty, you know? And I would buy sometimes stuff, you know, LLB, and I would send them stuff, but... When I cleaned out the apartment, I found bags of unopened stuff. I think occasionally my father would wear a sweater that I had gotten, but, like, the kind of pants that he wore, he wore, I think of them as man pants. They were, like, those kind of gray slacks with a crease down the front. I never saw him in jeans or khakis or chinos or corduroy pants. I wear those man pants, by the way. Yeah, Yeah. man pants. I wear gray wool blend pants. That's what he wore. That's what all New York men wear. Because you can come home and just throw on a button-down shirt and a blazer, and you're off to a cocktail party. Well, my father was not going to any cocktail party. (laughs) He wasn't. (laughs) Strangely enough, no, no. So he died first? He died first. He died how old? 95. And he died uh, in the the place? Yes, yes. And he had been in the place for how long? Uh, Not that long. Less than about half a year. He died in the room. With her? Uh, 
well, I say this in the book, it was this is not atypical. He was in hospice. Right. And my mother left the room briefly. She left to use the bathroom for like two minutes, maybe less, and that's when he passed. Isn't it interesting? Because I'm a firm believer that not with all people, but some people, they have that kind of mastery, and they're like, I don't want to die in front of you. I think that is exactly Ugh. what happened, and that's what the hospice lady How said. How did she react when she found out about that? Oh, she was in sort of shock. I mean, she in was shock. just, uh, I can't, you know, it's hard to even imagine they'd been married for, married in 38, it was 2007, I don't know. 69 years. 69 years, yeah. I mean, it was just an insane amount of time that they'd been together. And they were together before that. And they were each other's only, they were like soulmates. Human contact. Yeah. They yeah. were like one person. How long did she last after that? Almost two years. Did she change in her demeanor toward you once you were, once you were her only blood kin? I, no, I, it was... I think maybe she was trying to protect me sometimes, that maybe she thought real her real emotions would be too much for me to handle and that it was just easier to kind of— Well, you have the father who had crazy mommy. Yeah. And uh, if I can be so glib about this, yeah. and, 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 I mean, very often the woman like your mom who's as strident and as, as leathery as they are, yeah. there's some hurt that they're protecting. Yeah. Well, what, what happened with her to the extent you can say? Uh, Did she have an unhappy childhood? I don't know. I okay. mean, it, she— Never told me that she did, if she did. And you never explored that. And she did not want to talk too much about that. I mean, she would tell me these fixed anecdotes about the past. And, uh, you know. What did her parents do? Her father was, he did a lot of things, but one thing that he mostly did was he's a presser in the garment district. But before that, he had had an ice cream cone factory for a little while, (laughs) um, which she swept out. She wanted to be a ballerina at one point, um, but she was not graceful uh, or tall enough or anything. But she was saving up for ballet shoes. She told me that one. Um, I think he did some other things. He operated a movie theater for a while, like he was a projectionist. And, um, but mostly, he was an impresario. Yeah, I think he was always—oh, he, he, he took uh, tickets on a trolley car. But the main thing he did was he was a presser in the garment district, and he had five children. His wife, my grandmother, raised the children, and they had no money. Do you think that? Um, do you think that your perspective, which has this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful neurosis in it? I, mean, I said to you, like Woody Allen, where you're expressing things we all feel. You're, you're just doing it in a, in a funnier, you know, you and he in a funnier kind of more interesting way. Do you think you owe that to your mom? Uh, probably to both of them in some way. Uh, I think, you know, my parents were extraordinary people in but a lot of ways. But if they're sweet and sour in combination in your work, do you get the sweet from your dad and the sour from your mom? I think both and both. Both. I think both. The sweet and sour from both of them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What's definitely. your next book going to be about? Mm, things. <laughs> things. Stuff. Stuff. Stories and people. Trying to cope. Thing. I'll talk about it, and then I'll like completely jinx it. So yeah, I understand. It's I do. probably I'll, possibly about uh, New York, and that's all I'm going to say. What about writing about yourself and your marriage and your your, your you and your husband? Or it's so boring. boring. It's so boring. We don't go to the Bahamas. We don't go. We go to Stop and Shop. And we we go, went to Stop and Shop last we night. We go to the dollar store. It was really sad. <laughs> <laughs> and we went to Stop and Shop. Do you miss living in New York at all? I miss New York all Do the time. You really? I miss it so You've been in uh, wherever you live. I'm not going to say it on the air, but you live outside the city. And yes. you've been there for many, many years. Many, many years. And describe what it's like there. It's very pretty. It's very clean. And the air is crisp. The air is crisp. And women are freshly worked out and they have got a kind uh, of a... To some extent, it's people seem if they have, you know, neuro. You don't see too many people like yakking to themselves on the street unless they're talking to their phone. It's it's great. Uh, but I really do miss the city. I don't really like to drive. I don't really like houses. Your kids are grown. Yes. So why don't you and your husband move back to the city? Because he likes living out there. He does. He does. He and does. I'm in the same boat. I want to move out of the city. Uh-huh. And my wife was like, you know. She's singing West Side Story every night. She just can't imagine leaving New York. Yeah. Well, without kids, I mean, we would not have left the city. But with kids, it was just impossible. And we can't talk Bill into moving back? No. No, no. 
he really likes it out there. Yeah, he likes having a bird feeder. He likes ha- we have. I like having a bird feeder. That's the one positive thing. We do have a bird feeder. You have a and you have uh, two birds. And right? I have two birds. What yes. kind of birds? I have a caique and I have an African gray who talks. And I love birds. I'm a bird nut. Do you mind my asking of what the bird says? When oh talks? my God! Well, she says a lot of things. Um, she says good morning. She says good night. She says want. Want waffle? Can want. you still teach the bird to do things? Oh yes, yes. She gets. She's very neurotic. She plucks. She's very <laughs> she neurotic. Is. Oh she God, is. you have she's, a neurotic bird. She's she's an African gray. She's very very sweet. They're notoriously neurotic. She plucks her feathers, and she does say she does say don't pluck, and then she keeps plucking. But the thing I was going to tell you is that when people come into the house, she might be on her feeding stand. She'll get afraid. She'll fly to the floor, and I always say it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. So she taught herself that now if she's on her feeding stand and like some like a plumber comes by, he's got like tools off his belt and buckets and you know how yeah, plumbers strange shapes. Strange shapes. Like I always think of them as man. My dog does this when they yes. see homeless people with like a shopping cart filled yes. with plastic bottles. A strange shape and like too many things on the belt yes. and the buckets. And the she'll, sounds. she'll fly and clanging sounds. She'll fly to the floor. She'll sort of pace around and she'll go, it's okay. It's okay. Oh, I love it's that. okay. And and it is incredible. She soothes herself. It's so great. So I needed to tell you I that. I want to get I'm going to get a bird now. But they're a lot of work. I'm telling you. Mm, I don't but they're, care. they're so I'll great. I'll do anything for love. They're so great. They're so great. I don't care. I'll go to any lengths to be loved. Oh, I know. I know. And I want to have I want to have a I want to have a, a a bird, and I want the bird to say to me, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. She says okay. it to herself. Who needs anything more than that? I Add know. that to my list of a good reading lamp, a fireplace, a cup of coffee, and a gray African what? Uh, African gray. An African gray. And what should I name my— What's your bird's name? Eli. My son <laughs> named her. He, she, we thought she was a boy. And you can't—I forget what the word is, but, like, there's—you you can't tell from the outside. They have to have a blood test. So the vet— did a blood test. They have they have no external genitalia. No, that's what as no, it were. as it were. Nothing nothing There's is no, showing. Yeah, you can't. You, yeah, you yeah. It's uh, only from a blood test. The blood test, test just yeah. came in. It got lost in the mail. Yeah, so it's it was okay, Eli. It's okay. And the other one is a kayak, and she's not very. What's smart. What's the kayak's name? Jackie. Jack, and she's not very smart. She's not very smart, but she's so adorable, <laughs> and she's really pretty. So you know, who needs when you're like that pretty? You don't have to be that. I'm going to get a bird. Birds are fun. I'll think, let me think about it. But if I had a bird, yeah. I would name it Roz. Oh. I would name it Roz. You can see Roz Chast's cartoons in the pages of the New Yorker magazine and on her website, rozchast.com. To see a picture of Roz and her bird, Jackie, go to heresthething.org, where you can also see Roz's cartoon of this very interview. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. QAnon is now the most prolific online conspiracy theory of the 21st century. None of their predictions came true. Q has vanished and the storm never came. But QAnon is very much still alive. Join me, Jake Hanrahan, for season two of Q Clearance. We'll be documenting how QAnon has evolved. Listen to Q Clearance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.